Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. And today we're going to be going over one of the one of the myths of central banking that they can raise interest rates. Now, Jeff, uh, Dimitri Kofinas is the host of a fantastic podcast called Hidden Forces, but it tightens my jaw to no end that he confronts the hidden forces in geopolitics and society and technology. But when it comes to economics, he has Mohammed El Aryan on and he presents that the central bank is central to many things. And recently I was tweeting at him asking that if he ever has you on to have me on as well, because I'm going to take him to task for pushing the mainstream monetary narrative. Now, in his defense, very good. He said, well, what is the mainstream monetary narrative? And here's some of them. I said, central banks are central to money. Central banks provide liquidity. They cause or causing inflation that they manage the economy, that central banks drive markets instead of vice versa, that the Fed and Treasury guides the U.S. dollars, that central banks know what they're doing, that Volcker knew what he was doing, and that a petrodollar exists. And I very much regretted, wanted to put it on there, but I felt it would be too much, too much, if I told them the Fed doesn't even control interest rates. They can't, when they say they're raising interest rates, are they? And that's what we're going to go over in this article. It was a pretty good list. I mean, that's a huge list of things. I mean, most people would see that list and think, oh, my God, this is crazy. But, you know, you can't take any of them off of that list. I mean, that's a, a comprehensive list. And the reason it is that way is because, as you're pointing out, the hidden forces here, economics has done such a poor job of describing how things actually work. We're all just left to these myths, legends and shorthands that we're just supposed to take for granted. And the world goes one way while we're, we're all expecting it to go another way. Now, you are a blogger at Alhambra Investments. You're an essayist at Real Clear Markets. But did people know that you're a columnist at Epic Times? Wow. Awesome, Jeff. Awesome. Well, this is where we're going. We're going to the Epic Times. And on May 12th, 2022, they published this article, which said, which was titled, Why the Fed Can't Hike T-Bill Rates and What That Really Means. Now, Jeff, people have been watching this show. They have heard us say before the Fed doesn't control the long end, right? No, get out of here. Some people in the Fed, okay, they said that the Fed does do that. Some people that were chairmen and maestros believe that. But there would be strong pushback, Jeff, if we said, yeah, you know, even at the short end, the Fed doesn't control rates. They can raise their federal funds rate or some other kind of rate. But what is the market's reaction? Do they agree? Not always. Tell us, what are, what are we going to be looking at? Yeah, I think the more appropriate term is the Fed influences rates. And but that's not really that doesn't keep with the narrative because the mm. Fed's in control. They push buttons and everything just happens as predictably and simply as it is in the textbook. And um, even the federal funds rate, Emil, that's not such a simple thing as it used to be. Mm. You go back to before the 2008 crisis, the Federal Reserve used to pick out a federal funds target, a single target rate. And everything just seemed to fall in line. I mean, when I mean everything, I mean everything. You had treasury bills, which are money alternative. You had LIBOR, all the different money, uh, repo rates. They all seemed to just fit in with the Federal Reserve's target, which underscored or uh, kept alive this idea that the Fed does control the money market. When all the Fed was doing was just kind of sticking their, air, their finger in the air and just picking, picking a number, and all these things just kind of magically happened. Well, as you and I know, that's not, what, that's not what actually took place back then. 
what it required was money dealers to work in these markets and money dealers to commit a lot of resources to make sure all these markets obey these various hierarchies, which you don't need to get into here, so that it looks like the Fed was in control. And now that we've had dealers that are cutting back and reducing their balance sheet activities, balance sheet constrained ever since 2008, it isn't so simple. So even the Federal Reserve has to evolve, has had to evolve the tools they use. They no longer pick a federal funds target, a single federal funds target. They pick a range for the federal funds and they've added a couple tools to help them can keep money market rates in that range because again, there isn't these active dealers policing these markets, maintaining hierarchy. So the Fed is kind of trying to do it on its own to varying effect, as we talked about, or as, we, as I used to write about, we talked about privately in 2019 when federal funds and repo rates are all over compared to IOER and everything else. So the, the Fed has IOER and it has the reverse repo rate, which are supposed to keep money market rates into these ranges so that it looks like the Fed is maintaining control. But specifically with regard to the reverse repo rate, that really should be an absolute floor for money markets because why on earth would you ever accept a lower return than you could get at the reverse repo window when the counterparty is the Fed? So if you're lending cash in a short-term basis overnight, why would you lend to anybody else than the Fed at that rate? And by the way, when you're lending to the Fed, it's also collateralized. They give you collateral back. So this is the safest of the safest of the safe transaction. Why would you ever accept a lower return on anything else than that? So if the Fed is paying you, as it is now, 80 basis points in RRP, why is the four-week Treasury bill at 50-something? Or the eight-week bill that is 70-something? There's something else going on here, and it gets into what Emil was talking about, the hidden forces, that the Fed is not in control of all these rates. There are other things going on. There are other factors take to, to consider and there is a much more complex marketplace than wherever we've ever been led to believe. I'd like to make two quick points. The first one is before 2008, the dealers, as you said, they police these arbitrage opportunities. They, they enforce the hierarchy, as you told us once in Toronto at uh, Macro Voices presentation. They enforce the hierarchy and they had to do so by putting their balance sheet at risk on the asset and liability side very well. And there were costs associated with that. But you know what the difference was before 2008 and now? Back then, they knew that their balance sheet would be expanding. It would be expanding. So they knew that the costs would be less and less with time. There's always money to be made. We can make this arbitrage opportunity. It's like the NFL salary cap, NFL and the National Football League. It's always rising. So you can pay these guys more and more and more. But if ever you come to a point, National Football League or the bankers, when you realize, well, I don't know if my balance sheet is going to be expanding, all of a sudden these costs become real and maybe you're not able to police these arbitrage and enforce the interest rate hierarchy. They were doing the heavy lifting for the Federal Reserve. Point number two, Jeff, of course I've forgotten and I'm trying to stall what to remember what it was. <laughs> Uh, let's see. What was it? It was, it was ingenious. It was ingenious. I guess, well, let's just move on to talk about, oh, I remember what it was. You said, why would you ever not take that deal? The treasury's giving you collateral, Jeff, because you have to give that collateral back every day. Maybe, maybe it would be safer for your purposes as a dealer, a banker 
to hold on to that collateral so that you can do something with it. Because if you've got only a one day window and you always got to keep giving it back to the Fed, that may not work with your other purposes. Yeah, that's one of the primary considerations. And so we're getting into the realm of collateral here because obviously it's not the short term interest rate that you're interested in. Otherwise, you would just go right to the reverse repo window and take the 80 basis points and be happy. So you're obviously paying up for a four week instrument. Um, four-week treasury bill, which is the best of the best collateral. Therefore, it has some utility that has nothing to do with investment investment returns. And as we know, um, the higher the uh, premium paid for treasury bills, the reason for it must be because there is a premium on collateral. And if there's a premium collateral, there's just not enough of it to go around. Now I'm going to be, I'm going to look up what the latest uh, yields are for these things, but we're going to talk about the four-week the eight week, which I presume they're all still below the RRP floor. And then the three month one, Jeff, tell us very quickly about the three month one. That's probably above the floor, but tell the audience That's above Jeff, one. that three month period spans a period whereby we know, quote, rates are going to be going even higher, right? Because, well, the Fed will be hiking the rates that they control. So that's really an insult. That's a slap in the face, the three-month one, even though it may not look like it. Yeah, right now the three-month bill is about 105, which is still incredibly low, even though it's above the uh, RRP now. Um, as you know, the Fed has said, they've made it very plain. They're going to hike rates regularly, and they're going to do it at 50 basis points intervals at the very least. So in the next three months, there are going to be two Fed meetings, not one, but two, which means two additional rate hikes in that three-month period, which will add another percent to short-term interest rates, or at least another percent to the offering of short-term interest rates at the reverse repo window, as well as IOER. So why wouldn't the three-month bill be skyrocketing on its way toward 180? Instead, it was for a while there over the last couple of weeks, it was actually coming down closer to merging with the RRP as well as below IOER. And then over the last week or so, the next rate hike has sort of caught uh, investment funds to uh, sort of change the balance where dealers are still scrambling for collateral, which is why it's only at 1.05% rather than something significantly higher, which is where money market funds and investments would like it to be. Because as I said, in the three month window, there's going to be several rate hikes. So even the fact that the, the three month treasury bill is below or is above the reverse repo and IOER rates it's not nearly as, as much as far above as it really, quote unquote, should be, given what we're expecting from the Federal Reserve to do what the Federal Reserve is going to do with its alternate policy rates. The four week bill right now is trading at 0.51% and the eight week at 0.83. So obviously the Fed. Again, the eight week, even though yes. it's three basis points above RRP, it's seven basis points below IOR, and we have another. Fed rate hike in what, uh, three and a half weeks from now, a little bit closer to four weeks, but still there's 50 basis points of additional yield and it's an eight week instrument. So why is it at 83 basis points? And yes, as you said, the four week bill is at 51, but at around eight o'clock this morning, the four week bill was at 44 basis points and it had Jesus. been driven lower all throughout the morning session. So it's enormously big time less than RRP, even more less than the IOER. And on these days like today, we see these scramble for collaterals, which all of it combined tells us 
there's something really short in the collateral system in, the, in these collateral chains. And that's bad for the economy. That's We've seen this before during these acute dollar shortages, these warnings, these collateral days. Acute disorder may spill outside of the monetary system into the financial markets, into the economy, and affect all of us. That's how you started out this article, reminding yeah, us. Well, you know, one more thing about that is, you know, it's interesting to know because we're recording this on May 19th. And on May mm. 18th, we had a very large sell-off that hit almost most financial markets, stock market, and everything else. So. It wasn't really surprising to see this collateral scramble in the early morning hours of today because risk off yesterday across all these markets, illiquidity, repo counterparties are no doubt saying, I don't like your junky, risky stuff as collateral. Give me something good when we unwind tomorrow morning. And what happened the day after the sell off? We've got this massive scramble for collateral that was it was unusual in the fact that it was very clear, started very, very early in the morning during Asian trading before Europe got started. And then it, it was persisted. And then there was a second leg lower in the four-week treasury bill uh, around, I think it was seven o'clock in the morning, which meant that we had this massive scramble for collateral that usually kind of gets filled within an hour or so that persisted all morning and then got actually worse just before the U.S. opened. And then finally, when the U.S. opened, which is when these collateral windows start to close, then the T-bill rate goes back up to 51 basis points, which was already ridiculously low to begin with. So we had not just a perfect example of a scramble for collateral this morning, it was one of the largest ones, which again, kind of corresponds to what we saw in the marketplace yesterday. And then the implications, I think, is what we're gonna talk about next, which is this is not just a one-day phenomenon, there are systemic implications to it. The collateral is a form of money. There's not enough of it. There's not enough of this tool. The people that own or distribute this form of money are going to start hoarding it. That's going to make it more difficult for the wider economy to function. That's what you started out in this article uh, describing this another collateral day. And perhaps what is going to happen is this is going to filter out through the wider economy and affect the businesses as money is not being distributed. I don't know. I don't want to use the word fairly, but it's not distributed widely enough to the businesses that need to use it. And some of those businesses may be the lesser quality businesses. And is that, and then from there, maybe the highest quality, I don't know. But you highlight with three graphs here, different sort of credit spreads. What is the connection between these collateral scrambles, tightness of money, and escalating concern in the market regarding the, the financial viability, the health of different businesses around the world? When we look at credit spreads, usually we're looking at, uh, at least I start with the junk bonds. Um, junk euro bonds, whatever, the lower quality credits, because as we know, what happens is during these reflationary periods, money dealers start to get a little bit more optimistic. They never turn completely optimistic, but a little bit more optimistic. They take on a little bit more risk. And sometimes they accept more junk quality collateral than maybe they quote unquote should, because they think, well, let's be a little bit optimistic. I'm thinking specifically about 2013, for example, 2013, 2014, before the credit crash, the oil crash there, 2017's globally synchronized growth. We know there was a huge influx of Eurobond junk as collateral into the system. And so just like subprime mortgages a generation ago, back in the middle 2000s, you have this junk quality collateral that essentially poisons the overall systemic collateral pool. And inevitably, when the markets start to turn, when the markets say, 
I'm not as risk taking as I was yesterday. I'm starting to become much more averse. I got to take a second look at this junk collateral that's being posed in the not just the repo market, but also the derivative system as well. There's all sorts of transformations and collateral for collateral swaps and things like that. The more junk that comes in, the more the system is at risk for when that junk has to get thrown out. And one of the reasons that junk gets thrown out isn't just the credit characteristics of the obligers. More often than not, it's the liquidity of the marketplace in which these instruments actually trade in. So if you have even a decent junk quality obliger, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's actually not, where the, you know it's not at risk of default, but the marketplace for that bond becomes sketchy. What you'll see is the prices of those bonds reflect the liquidity in the marketplace, which then impacts the ability of collateral counterparties to accept them. They'll, they'll raise haircuts based on the illiquidity in the marketplace. And one sense of liquidity in these junk bond marketplaces is credit spreads. If credit spreads are rising, that's kind of a systemic indication that maybe liquidity in some of these lower quality assets is starting to become an issue. And if liquidity in those markets are becoming an issue, you better believe that repo counterparties are on top of that and adjusting these collateral streams for these these increasingly questionable credits, which means if you're a leveraged hedge fund or some other player who has been you know, betting heavily on junk bonds, reaching for yield, and it might not even be hedge funds, it might be pension funds and everybody else, funding these trades via repo. And now all of a sudden your repo cash lenders are saying, I don't like this junk quality collateral that you've been posting. I need either more of it so that I'm fully protected, or you need to find me some good quality collateral as a substitute or to supplement this junk that I've been accepting before. And so Scramble for collateral, collateral shortage, rising credit spreads. These things are all linked together through the way the systemic, uh, the, the, the systemic factors of the real monetary system, which is repo, derivatives, and those other kind of esoteric forms of monetary exchange. And those things are all signaling that there's trouble ahead, concerned that the worst is not behind us. It may be escalating. Okay, thank you very much, Jeff. All right, Emil, take care. 